This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... The summit is really rooted in the recognition that Africa is a key geopolitical player, one that is shaping our present and will shape our future. That's Dana Banks, the U.S. National Security Council Senior Advisor for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit next month. Details coming up. Also, we have an exclusive interview with Tunisia's first democratically elected president. The U.S. Secretary of State is stressing the need to implement the ceasefire between Ethiopia and Tigrayan rebels. And Japan upsets Germany at the World Cup. We'll have these stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Uganda says it will send 1,000 troops to Democratic Republic of Congo as part of an East African force to battle M23 rebels who are threatening the city of Goma. Uganda already has hundreds of troops in the DRC to fight an Islamic State-allied group, the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF. Analysts say the deployments are part of Uganda's effort to make up for past involvement in Congo's deadly civil wars. Halima Tumani reports from Kampala, Uganda. The Ugandan army on Monday said it will send 1,000 troops to the Democratic Republic of Congo by the end of November to join a regional force to help fight rebels and end decades of instability. Uganda already has hundreds of troops in the DRC sent a year ago to help fight the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, an Islamic State-allied rebel group. The ADF was blamed for suicide attacks in Uganda's capital Kampala in November 2021 that killed four people. Uganda will be the third country to deploy troops to the DRC under the East African Community Force after hundreds of Kenyan and Burundian troops arrived in recent weeks. Brigadier General Felix Kleiger is a spokesman for the army, known officially as the Uganda People's Defense Force. We are deploying for the end of the month. Every war in this region affects others. So if you can avoid war, if you can end it, it's the advantage of everyone. A 2013 peace deal that integrated into the DRC military some members of the March 23 movement rebels known as M23 fell apart last year. Fighting resumed and M23 has since been taking ground in the east from the Congolese military and in recent weeks moving in on the city of Goma. The UN says the fighting has displaced at least 240,000 people internally and across the border in Uganda in the last year. Alexander Rosero is a research fellow with the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg. Speaking to VOA by a messaging application, he says the regional force should be more effective than bilateral deals. Because prior to this, that's where you locate the trade-offs between Rwanda and DRC, trade-offs between Uganda and DRC, which are not helpful anyway because everyone would eventually emerge a loser where diplomacy and negotiation are not given a chance. This time around, this is an opportunity for them to actually correct their wrong mistakes. 
Uganda in August made a surprise war reparation payment of $65 million to the DRC for losses its troops caused during wars and occupations in the 1990s. The Hague-based International Court of Justice in February ordered Uganda to pay $325 million to the DRC for its 1998-2003 to invasion. While Kinshasa has welcomed Ugandan troops for the East African force, it has rejected Randers and accused Kigali of supporting M23 rebels, a charge it denies. Despite Kampala's efforts to make up for the past, not everyone agrees with the DRC's allowing Ugandan troops on the ground. Remy Kasindi is a coordinator for the Bukavu-based aid group Collective Amka Congo. He says Ugandan President Yoram Seveni's son, General Mohozi Kainerugaba, made a mistake with the November 6th tweet supporting M23. He says the challenge they have now is Rwanda's support for M23. But Kasindi says Museveni's son made a big mistake that annoyed us as Congolese. Kasindi says the Congolese used to trust the Ugandan army. On Sunday, Kainerugaba seemed to step back slightly with a tweet supporting calls by Kenya and Rwanda for M23 to withdraw from the territory it recently captured. Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, is to meet Wednesday with DRC's president, Felix Tshisekedi in Angola's capital Rwanda for another round of peace talks. Rosero says the East African countries sending troops to the DRC is part of efforts to put pressure on Rwanda at the negotiation table. It's a signal uh, that they are giving that we are serious and here's evidence of why we are prepared to do whatever it takes to confront uh, this crisis. The East African force will have its work cut out for it. DRC has more than 120 armed groups operating across the country's east. UN peacekeepers in the DRC, despite having more than 16,000 personnel at a 20-year prisons, have been hit with violent protests in the last few months for failing to bring stability. Halima Athmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Tunisia, the birthplace of the Arab Spring, was the only success story when it came to transition to democracy. Then came the election of President Kais Saeed, who began consolidating power last July when he fired the prime minister and suspended parliament. Tunisians initially praised the constitutional coup and hoped Saeed, a popular outsider who initially won office in 2019, might fix the country's badly broken political establishment. In an exclusive interview, Tunisia's first democratically elected president, Monsef Marzouk, told VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi that Saeed has been erasing the democratic gains made since the Arab Spring and explained why the revolution failed in Tunisia. Well, probably for internal reason and for external reason. External reason that the fact that uh, many countries, you know, intervened in our, uh, the process of democratization and uh, put a lot of money, a lot of pressure, because they were extremely afraid of the Tunisian revolution. And they were right, because uh, look, the, the wave now uh, reached Iran and the wave uh, reached Algeria, etc. So they were right, afraid of the Tunisian revolution. So they made a lot of resources, you know, to sabotage the revolution and also for internal reason, because uh, after 
through revolution, you have all the tenth revolution. This is quite normal. For the moment, we can say that the Tunisian revolution has failed because we didn't deliver what we wanted because the, the country revolution is back to the power. But we are seeing also the, the, the country revolution failing. So the, the situation now in Tunisia is that we are probably waiting for a new birth, for a new wave of revolution. It's a matter of time, and then we will resume our, our efforts to build democratic states. The, the Arab Spring, be sure that it's, it's not over. The Arab Spring is at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. How did the economy play a role in the failure of the revolution in Tunisia? Well, it played, once again, the, the people took to the street for two reasons in Tunisia and elsewhere for uh, social justice, which means for improvement of the uh, economic situation and for political freedoms. And we, we, the leader of the revolution, we delivered everything about the political freedom, but unfortunately we couldn't deliver at the economic level because, first, we have inherited of a corrupt economy. Uh, second, because when you have a political instability during the transition period, uh, this political instability is not a good factor for the economic growth because foreign investors and uh, local investors would say, let's wait until the, we have stable situations, then we can invest. Because of this, we, we couldn't have economic growth. And uh, the other reason is that uh, everything has been done to, to blockade or to sabotage all efforts because we inherited also the deep state. You know, when the dictator is toppled, it doesn't mean that you get rid of uh, all, you know, the civil servants. All we have inherited of the, the, the deep state, and the deep state did everything, you know, to, to sabotage the economy. So for many, many reasons, we couldn't deliver. But uh, once again, now with the country revolution, it's worse because now the country revolution, they uh, took all, all those liberties, all the political freedoms without giving any chance to the economy. The economy is at standstill for other reasons, but the country revolution is not delivering a, anything better than the revolution. The U.S. and the European Union tried to pressure Qaisai to change course and Tunisians took to the streets to demand reforms, but there was no progress in Tunisia. What is the way out in this country? Well, first of all, I don't think that the uh, Western regime did all what they should have done to put the pressure on the dictator, because unfortunately we didn't have any, uh, I mean the revolution, we didn't have any important support from the Western government, and mainly because probably they used it to have good relationship with the dictatorship, and this is uh, business as usual, despite the fact that they are talking all the time about democracy. So unfortunately I don't think that uh, they did what normally they should have done because defending democracy elsewhere is also democracy inside their own country. This is why I'm, we are very very much disappointed by the, the policy of the Western government and, and to know they are still backing the Qaisai look what happened at the summit of Francophonie summit, you know, all the democratic leaders they went there and uh, it was a kind of support to the dictatorship and the lesson is that we have to rely on ourselves you know, if to give uh, democracy a new chance we have to rely on ourselves and not at all on Western government. That was former Tunisian President Monsef Marzouki speaking with my colleague Mohamed Al Shinawi. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has introduced a new design for the Naira currency notes aiming to curb the use of excess amounts of cash and combat crime. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. President Mohamedou Buhari and top cabinet members, including officials of the Central Bank and the Anti-Graft Agency, attended the official launch of the redesigned 200, 500 and 1,000 Naira bills at the State House Wednesday morning. The move comes earlier than expected. The release of the new notes was originally scheduled for mid-December, but Central Bank of Nigeria Governor Godwin Emefiele said Tuesday Buhari had, quote, 
graciously accepted the invitation to unveil them sooner. The CBN says the measure was necessary to mop up excess cash from circulation, over 85% of total money available for public use, according to the bank. Authorities said the will also cut off access to the money used by kidnap for ransom gangs. Emefile told journalists that authorities would intensify monitoring of the new bills and put a restriction on the volume of cash that can be withdrawn over the counter. Public finance analyst Isaac Botti says that is the only way to address the problem. If the CBN has a policy that limits the amount of uh, Naira withdrawal, particularly the new currencies, if people begin to have more access to current, that new currencies in large sum, we are going back to the same circle now. These same people will collect the money and go and start again. The new bills will be in circulation along with the old ones until January 31st, 2023, when the old notes cease to be legal tender. Emefiele says the CBN could redesign the notes every eight years, but for now, many citizens will be trying to beat the CBN's deadline on the old bills. Timothy Opiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is stressing the importance of implementing the recently signed ceasefire between the federal government of Ethiopia and opposing fighters in the Tigray region. According to Reuters, State Department spokesman Ned Price told reporters that necessary actions include withdrawal of all foreign forces and concurrent disarmament of the Tigrayan forces. He said in a call yesterday with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, Blinken recognized the Ethiopian government work towards unhindered humanitarian assistance and restoration of government services, including banking, electricity, and phones in the regions of Tigray, Afar, and Amara. And Blinken highlighted the U.S. commitment to the African Union-led peace process, including its monitoring and verification mechanism. According to the Associated Press, Tigray's Regional Emergency Coordination Center says that since fighting resumed in August, 500,000 people have been displaced in northwestern Tigray alone. Senior U.S. officials say President Joe Biden's meeting next month with African leaders will amplify African voices in tackling this era's defining challenges such as deepening food insecurity and climate crisis. U.S. policymakers say the meeting confirms Africa as a key geopolitical player and will promote growing partnerships with Washington. From the Kenyan capital Nairobi, Ruben Chama reports. Dana Banks is National Security Council Senior Advisor for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, a three-day meeting in the U.S. that kicks off in mid-December. President Biden has invited 49 African heads of state and the head of the AU to Washington for a three-day summit to really highlight how the U.S. and African nations are strengthening our partnerships to advance our shared priorities. The summit reflects the U.S. strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa, which really emphasizes the critical importance of the region in meeting this era's defining challenges. Speaking to reporters late Tuesday from Washington, D.C., Banks gave more details about the upcoming summit's agenda to strengthen U.S.-Africa relations. 
the summit is really rooted in the recognition that Africa is a key geopolitical player, one that is shaping our present and will shape our future. Uh, as Secretary Blinken underscored when he traveled to the region earlier this year, Africa will shape not just the future of African people, but of the world. U.S. President Joe Biden will host leaders from across Africa in Washington, D.C., December 13th through the 15th for the summit. The meeting follows U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to Africa in August. Robert Scott is Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of African Affairs. African contributions and partnerships and leadership are essential today. You're looking at a continent, fastest growing population, largest free trade area, largest voting bloc in the United Nations. So issues that affect the globe uh, are in large part going to be solved through the involvement of African governments and populations. Senior advisor banks said the outcomes of the summit in December are expected to deepen the long-term U.S.-Africa partnership while advancing shared priorities. We realize that there is a great excitement around the summit, given that this is only the second summit that is being held after Leaders Summit, and so we really want to make sure that we are meeting the mark on that. With most African nations recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, U.S. officials say African countries need to be better prepared for health emergencies. Analysts say strengthening health systems and creating economic opportunities for women and youth, as well as addressing the climate crisis, will feature prominently in the forthcoming discussions. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. And now for World Cup action in Qatar. The host of the sunny side of sports, Sunny Young, is joining us live to discuss, among other things, what's behind the unpredictable nature of this year's tournament. Welcome to African News Tonight, Sunny. Sporty World Cup greetings, Yeheus. Great to be back on African News Tonight. So, Sunny, uh, what is your take on the games that have been played today? Well, we just saw the most lopsided game, Yeheus. Spain. I guess that's the best word to use. Spain spanked Costa Rica 7-0, the biggest margin of victory so far in the World Cup. Let me just quickly run down the scores for Spain. Morata, Soler, Gavi, two goals from Torres makes five. And then we had Marco Asensio and Olmo. Final score from Qatar, 7-0 Spain. Spain lifted the World Cup, of course, in South Africa in 2010. Upset in the second match of the day, Yeheus. Japan beat Germany 2-1, and Morocco and Croatia played to a goalless draw. But So we've had 11 matches so far, and uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think Spain may be the most impressive team I've seen so far, Yeheus. Are you allowed to score seven goals in soccer? <laughs> What's going on here? One of, one of my friends said he thought it was a basketball game, Yeheus. <laughs> my God. But uh, you just mentioned uh, Japan. How about Japan and Germany? Uh, the upset. Where do you put that against yesterday's upset between Saudi Arabia and Argentina? Interesting question, Yeheus, because 
there were similarities in both games. Uh, both Argentina and Germany took a 1-0 lead into halftime on penalty kicks. But in both games, uh, Saudi Arabia came back with two goals in the second half. Japan comes back with two late goals in the second half to stun Germany. Uh, I would have to say the bigger upset, though, Yeheus, was Saudi Arabia over Argentina. If I'm basing it strictly on the FIFA rankings, there's about 48 places between Saudi Arabia and Argentina. Uh, Japan has a quality team. Uh, They're currently ranked 24th in the world. Germany ranked 13th. So I would say Saudi Arabia had the bigger upset of the two. And what are your thoughts on the African team's performance so far? Well, interestingly, Yeheus, the two teams that have picked up points so far for Africa, uh, Morocco and Tunisia, both Arab-speaking countries. And uh, I was talking to your super producer, Muckbill Yabaro, how I kind of felt like maybe, maybe that's to your advantage to you know, to speak the language of a country, uh, Qatar also Arab-speaking. Maybe they feel a little more comfortable, like it's a home match. But I, I think Tunisia and Morocco could both do very well at this uh, first World Cup in the Middle East. The Moroccans, by the way, have gone, I think, uh, more than five matches, a total of five matches, Yehaeus, without conceding a goal. So they have, they have a very strong defense. And what are your predictions for Cameroon against Switzerland and Ghana against Portugal tomorrow? Uh, these are going to be tough matches for the African teams, Yeheus. Uh I got to go with Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal against the Ghanaians. I'm going to go with the indomitable Lions of Cameroon against Switzerland. I think both matches will be close. Ghana has a very young team. And I, and I think there has to be a certain level of experience at a World Cup. But, yes, I've been wrong before with my predictions, and I will gladly eat some crow if the Black Stars beat the Portuguese on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> and anything else you've been observing so far, though, uh, as far as uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the overall performance of the, uh, the tournament? Well, what you know, one interesting feature, uh, it, they've, they've had a lot of stoppage time in, in a lot of these matches, uh, which I think is partly due to uh, the video review. Uh, and, of course, when a player may or may not be injured during a match, I know you see a lot of players on the ground. Uh, but, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of stoppage time so far through through the 11 matches of the World Cup. Uh I will say we, we've also seen the uh, female referee for, from Rwanda, uh, Salima Mukansanga. She, uh, she has already uh, officiated uh, one of the World Cup matches, which I think is a, a great uh, testament, uh, not just to Africa, but also to, uh, to women, women overall, and how they're, they're being heard in international football. The host of the Sunny Side of Sports, Sunny Young. Thank you for your input again. Thank you, Yehaz. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. 
I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Thank you.